Let me invite you to take your Bibles again and join me in the New Testament. Today we come to our last sermon in our series on the book of Hebrews. Simply call it the sacrifices that God loves. We want to begin in the last two verses of chapter 12 because you'll remember that the chapter divisions are not unique to the writer of Hebrews. They were contributed about a thousand years ago, so the chapter divisions are artificial. I would suggest to you that chapter 13, as we have it, is actually built upon the last two verses of chapter 12. So we're going to read those two verses, verses we read a week ago. We're going to read them again and then read through the end of the book. Let me warn you that as we read chapter 13, you will find that this is typical of New Testament letters. The last chapter in many of the letters is, uh, if you will, uh, a menagerie, a collection of various sort of tidying up uh, things. If you write a letter, when you come to conclusion, you probably say, and you know, old Bill, he, he says, hey, and you know, the grandkids, they say, hey, and you know, that kind of thing. So, so you'll see some of that here, and you'll say, this must have been a real letter. Yeah, it was. It was a real letter. And uh, we have it as uh, the book of Hebrews today. We're thankful for it. So we'll read uh, beginning in chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us not Pardon me. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices 
are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Well, there's much to say in chapter 13. Many, many uh, statements here that are worthy of uh, a longer treatment than we're going to give them this morning. But in the interest of time, we will simply lump them all together and try to, uh, if you will, hit the high points that I think are important. It is my contention this morning that uh, what the writer is doing at the end of the book is reminding us of the uh, ethical, if you will, the behavioral uh, aspects of what it means to offer to God pleasing sacrifices. Going back to chapter 12, verse 28, Uh, Let us offer to God acceptable worship, acceptable worship. Now, you probably are familiar with the suggestion that the book of Hebrews is authored by the Apostle Paul. You've heard that suggestion or heard that as a possibility. It is anonymous, so we don't know. And the reason they suggest, many do, that uh, Paul is the author is because of the way he uses language. And this particular language is an example of that. There's only one other place in the New Testament where that language is used, this acceptable worship or reasonable worship. And it is in the book of Romans, chapter 12, and there Paul clearly is the author. So the suggestion is, well, if Paul used that phrase there, and he, then this letter uses that phrase here, and we don't know who the author is, well, Paul's the only one that used it, therefore Paul must be the author. Okay, that's fine. But there are other things in the letter that would suggest Paul's not the guy because the other ways of identifying Paul's style of writing, if you will, are not found in the book of Hebrews. So that's why there's uncertainty. We're not going to go to seed on that. It's just to acknowledge that this particular term is used. And there it helps us to understand this. So I want us to turn quickly to Romans 12, verse 1. I'll just read it for you. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So present your bodies a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable or appropriate worship. The writer of Hebrews uses that terminology. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe 
for God is a consuming fire. I want to suggest to you that God cares about the way you live. And in fact, the way you live is evidence of that which you care about God. The manner in which you live is the way you offer sacrifice to God. Now, specifically, I want you to notice that he, in the, um, the, the lion's share of chapter 13, the, 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 if you will, the, the thrust of the chapter is to consider the ethical way in which you live your life. In uh, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 13, there are five commands or five imperative verbs. And uh, here they are. Look at verse 1 and following. Let brotherly love continue. Show hospitality to strangers. Care for those in prison. Honor the marriage bed or marriage fidelity. And then guard your heart from the love of money. In other words, God intends for you and I to offer acceptable worship. What does it mean to be a worshiper? If you have this very narrow view of worship that suggests worship is a service, come into a meeting at a church house. If that's your narrow view of worship, you are not walking on biblical foundation. Because in fact, you are a worshiper every moment of every day. It's like you're a son or a daughter of God every moment of every day. There is no day, there is no time in any day when you are not a child of God. And if you are a child of God, then everything you do is an expression of that relationship. That's not hard to get our hearts around. My last name is Belser. I've been a Belser all my life. Good, bad, ugly. I mean, that's just the way it is. And there's nowhere I can go that I'm not branded by that name, by that identity. Neither can you. That's fine. That's appropriate. It's exactly right. We raised our children in that deal. You, you can't go anywhere that you don't represent the family. What's well, so the same relationship we're talking about here. It's a metaphor for helping us to think about what it means to be a follower of God. What is acceptable worship to God? What are the acceptable sacrifices that you and I should make day after day? Well, I want you to note in verses 1 to 5, let us offer to God the sacrifice of faithful dependence upon him. I'm going to show you how this works in this chapter. Now I want you to look again at the imperatives, verse 1. He says, first of all, let brotherly love continue. The first thing you need to do, he says, is love one another. Secondly, show hospitality to strangers. There's that odd phrase, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. There's, there's no evidence of that in Scripture except for the one instance where, <clears throat> in, the, in the book of Genesis, where the patriarch entertains angels unawares, uh, but the rest of us could have entertained angels when we have shown hospitality, when we've shown deference, when you have loved people that maybe others would not expect us to love or, or invited people into our lives or to our homes or to our families and so forth and so on. Show hospitality. That's a sacrifice to God that connotes, that communicates that you're faithfully depending upon him. He says, thirdly, verse 3, care for those in prison. Care for them in prison and those who are mistreated because you also are in the body. Can you imagine? Well, that's the problem. We don't imagine. 
And because we don't imagine, we don't have compassion. Because we don't think about them, because we don't keep track of them, because we ignore them, because we just marginalize these people who are mistreated in every kind of way in life, not just prison, but other ways. Those who are mistreated, because we don't identify with their mistreatment, we ignore them. But he takes the other approach. What does it mean to offer a sacrifice that's acceptable to God, that's pleasing to God? It is to care for those who are mistreated. Fourthly, the marriage bed. Keep the marriage bed undefiled because God will judge. Let marriage be held in honor among all. When I do a wedding ceremony now, I always say this. I say it is now our responsibility, and I'm speaking to the congregation that's gathered. Sometimes it's a small congregation, sometimes it's not so small, but I say all the time, it's our responsibility to not hinder the vows that are taken here. To not jeopardize nor hinder the vows that are taken here. My job in your marriage is to help it succeed. Not because I'm a preacher, but because I'm a Christian. My job is to help your marriage succeed. My job is not to help your marriage fail. So every moment of every day, I live in community with people who are married And my job is to help them succeed. Because that is the way I offer an acceptable or reasonable sacrifice to God. It is not a small thing that I help you succeed in marriage. It is the right thing. And it connotes a faithful dependence upon God. And then lastly, keep your life free from the love of money. Remember, money's not the problem. It's the love of money that's the problem. Because the love of money is the soil from which many grievous sins grow and when many lives are shipwrecked. Many, many families are ruined. Not by money, but by the love of money. Oh my, the stories that we could tell. Instead, he says, be content with what you have And then he quotes the Old Testament. I want to suggest to you that these three stories that I'm about to reference in the Old Testament will help us think (coughs) deeply about them. I want want you to see how he uh, references these stories uh, as as we consider them together. Uh, He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. It's a quote from Joshua chapter 1, which we're going to look at momentarily. And then he says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? All right, so I want you to step back for a moment before we look at those three Old Testament stories very quickly and think, what's the point has he just made? He, He started this section by saying you should offer a reasonable and acceptable sacrifice to God. You should worship God with these sacrifices and the five verbs of sacrifice are let brotherly love continue, show hospitality to strangers, care for those in prison, honor the marriage bed, and guard your heart from the love of money. In other words, he's saying there are ethical or behavioral aspects of what it means to worship God. 
Worshiping God is a daily affair. Worshiping God is an hourly affair. Worshiping God is a moment-by-moment affair where day after day after day after day, and now he quotes the Old Testament, and specifically he quotes a passage that says, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Now you might say, that, that's a bit of a hairpin turn that he just took me on there because I don't see how that connects to what is acceptable worship, what is behavioral fidelity, behavioral faithfulness. You don't see how those three stories that those, that those passages, that passage comes from, connect. Well, I'm going to show you that quickly. The first is, let me say from the outset, that passage is, is, occurs three times in the Old Testament. Three times. Now, not directly, but indirectly, this is the point. They occurs three times, and I want to remind you of those three times. The first is Genesis 28. I'm going to read a portion of Genesis 28. This is the story where Jacob encounters God in a dream, and he sees a stairway, some would say, but the Hebrew word is a ladder, so Jacob's ladder. So many of us know the story of Jacob's ladder, and if you don't know it, you're about to hear it. So here it is. Jacob's story in Genesis 28 uh, and following. I've lost my place here. Yeah. There we go. Verse, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head. By the way, it's a lousy pillow. And he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached into heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. The Lord tells him, I will be with you. Jacob has a moment with God. And the Lord says, I will never, ever leave you. A second example of this, Joshua chapter 1. You'll remember that Joshua is taking over for Moses. No pressure. You're following the most important man in the history of Israel, Moses. No pressure. So you would expect Joshua maybe to be a little, you know, less confident, have a little sinking spell here. Notice in verse 5, this is what God tells Joshua. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all 
uh, do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may give good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you shall be careful to do according to all that was written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed, for the Lord God is with you wherever you go. And then one last, Psalm 118. I would suggest many of us very familiar with Joshua's story, many of us very familiar with Jacob's latter story. There would be relatively few of us, because I have been your pastor and probably have not taught you well, but there would be relatively few of us who understand the power of Psalm 118. Let me give you a backdrop. There are six psalms, Psalm 113 to 118, that form a section in the book of Psalms called the Hallel. The Hallel. The Hallel was a section of praise psalms that were sung and used in the Passover meal. So again, step back. What is the Passover? The Passover is the remembrance of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. The angel of death would pass over the house. He would skip the house where the blood of the lamb was spread upon the doorposts over the door. So he would pass over. So from that day, God instituted the celebration of the Passover occurring in the month of March, typically, the, the Passover meal. And in that particular meal, there were certain things. There were certain words prescribed, certain memories prescribed, certain verses of the Old Testament prescribed, and there were four songs sung, and still are. In the Orthodox Jewish family today, there are four songs sung in the Passover. And those psalms are taken from the Hallel, Psalm 113 to 118. Now, why is that important? Because on the night that Jesus was crucified, he celebrated the Lord's Supper with his disciples for the first time. And he changed the meaning of the bread and cup, and he applied it to himself. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, from now on, do this in remembrance of me. He supersedes Egypt. So the exodus for Egypt is replaced by Jesus and his making available to us the exodus from hell, from the slavery of sin. Now, why is that important? Because you'll recall in the Gospel of Luke, the Scripture says, following the Lord's Supper, they sung a hymn and they went out into the night. And Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he was betrayed, arrested, and the next morning crucified. The last song that Jesus ever sung on this planet is the fourth song 
sung in the Passover meal. And that song is Psalm 118. It's not how great thou art. It's not the old rugged cross. It's certainly not in the garden. It's Psalm 118. I want to show you five verses of Psalm 118. I want you to remember, this is the man who is about to be crucified singing this song. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Where have we heard that verse? That's the verse that Hebrews quotes in Hebrews 13. It is from Psalm 118. It is from Joshua 1. It is from Genesis 28. What can man do for me? The Lord is on my side. The Lord has promised he will never leave me or forsake me. Therefore, go out and live a sacrificial life. Let us offer to God the sacrifice of faithful dependence upon him. Listen, if Jesus can sing that, believe that, and then obey that, he can then offer the sacrifice of himself the next morning. This is the worst night that any of us could ever imagine, and Jesus is singing that. He is saying those words. Think of the encouragement that ought to bring to our own hearts this morning. What excuse do we offer for not being faithful? What excuse do we offer, for instance, not being kind to people, showing brotherly love? What excuse do we offer for not keeping the marriage bed honorable? What excuse do we offer for being covetous or envious of people's money or somehow being attracted to material things? What excuse do we offer that we don't care for those who are disadvantaged or those who are mistreated, specifically those who are in prison? What excuse do we offer? Invariably, we offer this notion somehow that we're not safe or that it's not right, or that we ought not to offer these kind of sacrifices, or it's just too big of a burden. Friends, remember this. The example of the writer of Hebrews is, Jesus is your example. And he counted the cost and went and did it. He committed his way to God. He didn't make an excuse. He didn't give himself an out clause. He didn't pretend that somehow his life ought to be obsessed with himself. Jesus is the example of the one who cared little for himself and much for the glory and the goodness of God. And he commended his way to God. And we need to go and do the same. So in the first part of Hebrews chapter 13, he is reminding us that we are to offer to God these acceptable sacrifices. And it looks like faithful deference to other people. Think of it. Let brotherly love continue. That's outside of yourself. Show hospitality to strangers. That's outside of yourself. Care for those in prison. That's outside of yourself. Honor the marriage bed. That's outside of yourself. You're deferring to your spouse. You're being true to your vows for your spouse. Guard your heart in the love of money. Again, outside of yourselves. You're not 
judging other people on the basis of money or you're not somehow being envious or jealous of their money. On and on we could go. This is the nature of what it means to be a follower of Christ. You're small, God is big. And that brings us to the second section, which follows. Verse 7 and following. There are now seven imperatives, seven commands over the next long section. Not five, like there were in the first part of this chapter, but now seven. And all of them have to do with the leaders in the church. All seven of these imperatives have to do with remember your leaders, obey your leaders, honor your leaders, give gratitude to your leaders, and so forth. But that's not the thing I want you to see. I want you to see the motivation for that. I want to suggest to you that when I preach to pastors, when I have the opportunity to encourage pastors, there are several verses in Hebrews 13 that really uh, resonate with me when I preach to pastors. First of all, uh, if you'll look at verse uh, 17, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. I, uh, I know pastors like the first part of that verse. Obey your leaders, submit to them. They're keeping watch over your souls. Do you not realize how important my job is? I'm caring for your souls. These other fellows are you know, maybe caring for your, you know, your ingrown toenail, but I'm caring for your soul. And that's important. You ought to respect me and honor me and so forth and so on. What they don't like for me to point out is, yeah, and you're going to have to give an account for how well you do that. And then it goes beyond that. Notice what else it said. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, every time a pastor whines, every time a pastor feels sorry for himself for being a pastor, you actually rob your people and you rob yourself. It's of no advantage. You poison the soup. So I'm pretty hard on preachers. Because I just, I just, it's not attractive for preachers to be whiners. Frankly, it's not attractive for sheep to be whiners either. But that's another story. That's not what that verse says. That verse says pastors need to man up and quit running around feeling sorry for themselves. But that's a sermon for another day. Did I mention there are several sermons in this chapter? There really are. But let me offer this one. Let me remind you what he's saying here. He's going to give you seven imperatives, beginning in verse 7, about honoring, respecting, serving, obeying, yes, obeying your leaders in the church. And the reason why that is is because this is a part of your sacrifice to Christ. Let us offer to God the sacrifice of identification with Christ. If I'm a Christian, it means this. If I'm a Christian, it results in this. If I'm a Christian, it it begs this. It requires this. It just follows that this is going to be true of my life. And in this paragraph, he's saying that means that you're going to be a part of a local church. You're going to respect your leaders. You're going to honor your leaders. You're going to submit to your leaders. And he does all of that because of our identification with Christ. Now, this is an important argument that we need to contend with. Notice what he says. Verse 9. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. In other words, 
the heart needs to be strengthened by that which is supernatural rather than that which is natural. We need to pay attention to the fact that we walk to a different drumbeat. That which drives the Christian is not physical. So it's not about the creature comforts. It's not about the the worldly things, the material things. It's not about those things. What drives the Christian rather is grace. He says now in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent, meaning the tabernacle, the, the priest, he's going back to the priest again, the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice or sinned are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now I want to stop there a moment and make sure you understand that particular illustration. He says, uh, we, if you will, encounter God at an altar, and I suggest to you that's not a physical altar, but a spiritual altar. We encounter God at an altar that those who tend the tent have no authority at and have no right to participate. What he's saying here, of course, is that those who are without Christ can worship at a physical altar. They can go through the motions of religion, but they are without Christ. So without Christ, they do not have access to the altar of Christ. So no matter how religious they are, they don't know Christ. Therefore, they have no access to Christ. And Christ is very clear in the New Testament that if we do not come to God through Christ, through him, we don't come to God. That's not the gyrations of the thinking of men. Those are the words of the Savior, the one who actually shed his blood so that we might have the hope of eternal life. You come through one door or you don't come. So his point is to agree with Christ. And he uses an illustration that dates back to Leviticus chapter 16. Again, I'm not going to belabor this. I'm not going to turn back there and read, but I'll remind you of what happens in Leviticus 16. That is the chapter that describes the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. You may see that's coming up very soon on your calendars. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. The details of Yom Kippur are in Leviticus 16. In that particular experience, two things happen. One, the the priests come together and they make sacrifices for their own sin. In other words, they have to get clean before they help other people get clean. So the priests have to make sacrifices for themselves, and all that is prescribed in Leviticus 16. The second thing they do is they take the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat and they sacrifice those animals and they sprinkle the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat on the altar. So you have the, the Ark of the Covenant and it has this lid on it and has cherubim wings over the top and the, where they join together is called the bema or the mercy seat and they would sprinkle this blood over the mercy seat and they would ask God for forgiveness for all those people out there. They're inside the Holy of Holies. The high priest is. He's inside. He's right in there with God. He's doing business with God. And he's taking the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat. And he's sprinkling it on the altar. But the question begs asking is, what happens to the carcass 
That was the blood, but what happened to the body, the carcass of the bull and the goat? In Leviticus 16, it says you take the carcass of the bull and the carcass of the goat, and you take it outside the camp and you burn it. And every other sacrifice that's offered in conjunction around, there's a, this elaborate sacrificial system, every other carcass that's offered for sin, you take it outside the camp and you burn it. So there is a fire burning all the time. And it is particularly burning on the Day of Atonement. Why should the blood of the sacrifice be sprinkled and the carcass be burned? Well, there's a lot of speculation on that. I won't belabor it too much except to say because that's the sacrifice. You burn it because no one is going to take advantage. No one is going to profit. No one is going to benefit. You see, when you, when you bring the normal sacrifice, the priest would, would take a portion of it and offer a sacrifice, and they would keep the rest for themselves. That's how the priest, who didn't have a job, got funded. How did the priest survive? They ate the sacrifice. So you brought a meal offering. You brought a, a, a sheaf offering. You brought an animal. The, the, sacri- the, the priest, the ones who wait at tables, they would take those carcasses, and they would survive. There were meat markets set up. When they had too much, they would sell that. and People would come and they would buy food from the priestly meat market, so forth. So that's how they survived. But for the sin offering, you don't do that. For the sin offering, you burn everything outside the camp. And everybody knows that that's rejected. Nobody gets that. It's destroyed. It's consumed. It's tainted. It's damaged. It's damaged by your sin. So go back to Hebrews. So, 12. Jesus also suffered outside the gate. How did Jesus suffer outside the gate? Well, you'll have to remember where Calvary is. You'll have to remember where Golgotha is. You'll have to remember where the place of the skull is. It's not inside the walls of Jerusalem. It's on a hill. It's on a hill outside the walls. If you go to Jerusalem today, the only two options they give you for where Golgotha is are very much inside the city. But in those days, they would have been outside the city. In other words, Jesus went outside the camp because that's where they went to kill criminals rejects people tainted by sin that's where they went to humiliate them and here's what he says he says let us offer to God the sacrifice of faithfulness then he says let us offer to God the sacrifice of identification with Christ we are now the people of Christ and what does that mean That means we're the people outside the camp. Notice what he says. Verse 13, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Let us identify with Christ. Let us be known as followers of Christ. Let us be known as people the world does not respect. The world does not value. The world mocks. The world 
makes jokes about. Let us be those people. So be it. Our Savior was that person. Everything about Jesus treasured God more. He goes on to say, verse 14, For here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. Through him let us then continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We are to be the people who identify with Christ, who, who, who align ourselves with Christ and his people. That's why the church is critical. That's why the people of God, known as the church, is critical. That's why God intends for the church to prosper, for the church to go forward, for the church to be brave, for the church to be courageous, for the church to be, the church to be faithful. This is no place for wimps. We are be, to be the people who proudly and gladly identifies Christian. And who gladly and, identif- and proudly identify with the people of God. We are few in number. But we are going to be faithful anyway. We are going to do what God tells us to do. And many will mock us and we will feel the marginalization of society and we will be treated with disdain by some, even many. But this is not home. They'll mock us here. But they don't know what we know. They don't see what we see. They don't feel what we feel. They don't believe what we believe. We don't say that because we're superior. We say that because we have followed the Lord and we're counting the cost of following him. And our Savior went outside the camp in order to be humiliated and we're going to go with him. And the world will never respect us We'll never be celebrated in the halls of honor of the culture. We never will. It's quite all right. We're not looking for that anyway. We're not looking for a city of this world. We're looking for a city that has foundations. Go back and read chapter 10. Whose maker and builder is God. Whose architect is God. That's what we're doing. We're following Abraham who looked for that city. We're following Moses, who counted the reproaches of Christ greater than the pleasures of Egypt. We're following after all of these examples that he's already told us about in the book of Hebrews. We're following these who have gone before us. We stand on the shoulders of giants. Not giant people, but giant faith. And we dare not compromise. And we dare not shirk away. And we dare not cut corners as regards our own faith. Let us do godly things and let us recognize that it will cost us to do godly things. It will cost us money. It will cost us time. It will cost us convenience. It will cost us our reputation at times. It will cost us and cost us and cost us and cost us. That's what sacrifice is. 
But these are the sacrifices of the people of God. We don't sacrifice bulls and goats. We sacrifice our ambition. We sacrifice our ego. We sacrifice our, our uh, desire to be praised. We, we sacrifice the convenience of our own schedule. And we give and we give and we go and we go and we do and we do and we serve and we serve and we love and we love and we turn cheeks and we go extra miles and we love our enemies and we pray for those who offend us and hurt us. And we are different people because our Savior went outside the camp. And we are the ones who follow him. So let us go outside the camp. And day after 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 day. Let us be faithful to identify with Jesus. That could happen in a hundred ways in your life. I just want to urge you this morning. Look around. And there may be a hundred options, but choose one. And get busy. Get busy dying to you and living for Jesus. Because this, this is the way of God's people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have loved us so and that you are calling us to be faithful. Thank you for the mercies of Christ day after day. Thank you for the grace that you've given to us. We are not nourished by food. We are nourished by the grace of Christ. We pray for that grace even now. Draw us near to you. Draw us fully aware of you and help us to be obedient to the ways of God. Help us to respond to you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.